Well, good morning. How are y'all? I'm going to need a little more response. How are y'all? That's better. Great. Thanks. Hey, when you're up here and you see all of you, it's, it's helpful to hear, get a little feedback. So, uh, my name is Nathan McCallum. It's just really good to see you here uh, today and to open God's word together. Uh, like last week on Mother's Day, I had a really quick uh, charge and encouragement to mothers. And I, I want to start today with the same thing for seniors. Um, I know I may not look like it, but it wasn't that long ago that I was in your shoes, um, just about a quarter of a century. Um, but, I, but I do remember what it was like to be a senior and the excitement. I mean, I literally can visualize myself pushing through the door uh, the last day of high school uh, and, and just feeling that sense of freedom. And so I just wanted to encourage you this morning that uh, just a little bit with my story, just real quick. Uh, I was saved at the age of seven. I grew up uh, in a pastor's home uh, and kind of lived, lived in Kansas City, Missouri for the first 15 years of my life. Uh, but the Lord called my dad to a church in Hot Springs, Arkansas, right before my sophomore year of high school. And so I really did high, most of my high school career was actually at a totally different school, in a totally different church. And uh, really what ended up happening uh, in that same summer, uh, I felt both called to ministry in my life, didn't really know what that would look like. Um, and at the same time started really what I felt like in my heart growing further away from the Lord. And, and some of that's kind of retrospective. I can look back on my life and see that now but I think I just had some issues with God calling us away from what I'd always known uh, and didn't really know how to handle that. And so when I came to college, what kind of happened through my high school years is my heart began to grow a little bit more cold toward the, towards the things of God. I was a little bit more um, distant from the Lord. And really what I started to believe in my heart, wouldn't, maybe wouldn't have said this, but what I started to believe in my heart when I came to college was that Honestly, everything good and everything fulfilling in my life would be found away from God. It'd be found away from God. And so what I want to do this morning is just to encourage you that that is a lie that you will probably feel at some point in your life. And, and honestly, if you're in here and you're not a senior, it's the same for you too. We, we all tend to gravitate towards this idea that true life is actually found away from God. And so what I wanted to do, just real quick, if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to, to Psalm 16. It's in the middle, basically the middle of your Bible. If you turn to the middle, it'll probably be Psalms or Proverbs. Turn left and you'll find Psalm 16. Um, and I just wanna read this to you. I'm not gonna read the whole Psalm. I'm really gonna highlight just a couple things real quick, just for you seniors and for you parents of seniors, and then we'll get into our text in Philippians. But I just felt... The Lord really pressed on me. As I was thinking about you seniors this week, this was really kind of laid upon my heart. And so uh, I really wish I would have treasured this particular scripture in my heart as I transitioned into either workforce or college. So uh, look at Psalm 16, verse one. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And I just wanna stop right there and say, if you're a parent in the room or a grandparent in the room of a senior, what a great prayer to pray for your, for your kid. God, would you preserve my child? Would they take refuge in you? If, if you're a senior in here and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, would you preserve me, Lord? And then notice what he says in verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You see, what we're tempted to believe is that actually all good comes apart from God. That's, that's the way in our flesh that we're wired and that's what our culture will tell us. That's what a lot of your friends will tell you. And what the psalmist, what David says is, no, 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 actually I have no good, no good motives, no good things in my life apart from you, Lord. And, and here's what we tend to do, I think, is we tend to chase after things that we think will make us feel better, that will fulfill us, that will be good and what ends up happening, I think, is verse four. We chase after other gods, and it says, the sorrow of those who run after another god shall multiply. You see, we think when we chase another god, our joy will multiply, but what ends up happening is it's sorrow. And I can testify from my own life, as I got to the end of my rope in college, that that's the case. And I just want to encourage you, but, but the main thing I wanted you to see is verse 11, as, as I finish up this little exhortation to you. If, if you have a Bible and, and if you use a pen, or if you write in your Bible, I would just circle verse 11. 
Because this is what the psalmist tells us about God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like those are three things that you can pin your life on as you transition with all the excitement of, of independence and freedom and responsibility and maturity and all the things that you will grow in. I mean, my son graduated college yesterday and I just see an immense growth in him just in the time that he was there. There's so much to be excited about, but, but what I wanna encourage you in is to root yourself in this truth that it's actually the Lord who makes known the right paths, the paths that actually lead to life because you'll be tempted to believe the opposite. And not only that, that the little joys in life can only find their fullness of joy in him. That when you experience the joys of independence and freedom, the fullness of that joy is only found when you experience those things in Jesus. And then the thing that we don't talk a lot about in church is actually he's for your pleasure. He's for your pleasure. At the right, at his right hand are pleasures forever. So seniors, wherever you are in the room, I just would wanna encourage you today that as you embark on this exciting journey of where you're going in the rest of your life, that Jesus wants to bring you fullness of joy, that he wants to lead you to the path of life. Seek him. Okay, let me pray for you seniors, just like Kevin did, and then we'll jump into Philippians. Our Father, we come before you right now just grateful for the way you've worked in the lives of these seniors and these families. Um, and I just pray, Lord, that as they embark in this new season of life, whether it be at work, vocation, whether it be school, whether it be a gap year, whatever it is for them. Father, would you root them deeper in the understanding and belief and faith that you lead to life, that you are for the fullness of their joy. God, would they seek you in, in the moments that they forget, in the moments that they turn, would you lovingly and mercifully draw them back? Would you help the parents to trust you that you will preserve their children? that those that you've entrusted to them, that they've turned around and entrusted back to you, that you'll preserve them. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now we're gonna kick off in, back in Philippians. This is week four of our series through Philippians and what we're calling gospel joy and gospel power. Gospel joy, gospel power. And, and basically what we've been looking at in the book of Philippians is so far we've seen Paul, who's, you know, he planted this church about 11 or so years before this letter was written. Paul is encouraging the church. He starts out with a prayer for them and talks about his gratitude for them. And then he, we said he transitioned kind of what I was referring to from my childhood as a missions report from the missionary. Here's what's going on where I'm at. Here's what I hope to do in the future. But what we see today is a transition really from, from that motif in his letter and into uh, what I would call kind of the next 22 verses, he's, he's really kind of honing in on one idea, one idea of a call. Now, we're not gonna go through all 22 verses today. We're gonna be in just four verses so you can breathe. Uh, your lunch plans are not in jeopardy. But we're gonna go through four verses and begin to see what Paul is now redirecting the letter to do and to encourage them with. In fact, uh, one of the commentaries I read, Tony Morita and Francis Chan did a commentary together. And this is what they say. This is what they say about Philippians 1, 27 through 30. They say believers are making a statement about the gospel, not only with their lips, but also with their lives. Not only with their lips, but also with their lives. Lives. Now, why would they say that? Well, let's read the text together, Philippians 1, 27 through 30, and then let's talk about what Paul is saying. So, starting in verse 27, he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see there, verse 27. Believers are making a statement about the gospel, not only with their lips, but also with their lives. And if we proclaim the gospel with our lips, the reality is we're making a statement with our lives. The question is just, does the statement our lives make match up with the statement of our lips? How we're living, does it match up with the gospel message? Because I think if we're honest, we, we all know people who profess to follow Jesus with their lips, but their lives tell a different story. And let me be very clear, I'm not talking about somebody who struggles and someone who falls into sin. I'm not talking about perfection here. When we say the message needs to line up with their lives, we're not talking about that they live perfect lives because the reality is we're all going to stumble. Even Paul, I said this last week, even Paul will say later in the letter, not that I've reached perfection. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about people who are trying to follow Jesus and fall down and get back up and run to him for grace. We're talking about people who say that they follow Jesus, they preach the gospel, but you look at the course of their life and they have unrepentant sin, they have a rebellious heart towards the Lord. Do our lives match what we say with our lips? Because we know when we see a person whose life tells a different story than their lips over the course of time or in the face of difficulty, we tend to find ourselves thinking one of two things. We either think they're a hypocrite, they say this, but they live like this. We either think the issue is with them or the issue's with the message. If that was really true, wouldn't they live different? And so what Paul is encouraging us this morning is to see in the text that what we preach, the gospel, and the way we live need to match up or else we don't want people to believe that the gospel isn't true. So let's look at how he paints this because I believe, I believe Journey Church that we can, that our lives can match what we preach. I believe they can happen, but to do it, we're gonna need the spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds today from this passage and I believe that he will. I believe the spirit will do that. So, so let's look at it and as we look at it, I think you're gonna see three in particular things. You're gonna see a primary call, you're gonna see a public witness and we're gonna look at a profound courage. A primary call, a public witness and a profound courage. So. What's the primary call? Well, you look at it, you see it right there at the first part of verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the call. Lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, God doesn't save you to leave you where you are in life. He saves you to make you a saint. That's verse one, chapter one to the saints at Philippi. He saves to make you a saint and then he increases you in holiness across your life. That's called sanctification. Or to put it another way, when you put your faith in Christ, God declares that you are holy and set apart. That's true about you. When you put your faith in Christ, he declares that you are holy and set apart. That is true. But then he makes you holy and set apart across your life on earth. Paul is emphasizing the importance, the importance of believers that making the statement with their lives matches the statement they make with their lips. And it's not just that it's an important thing, it's the important thing. Because notice the second thing I want you to notice about the primary call is the first word he says, only, only. This is a call to let your manner of life be the primary call only. You see, he's coming off of where he is encouraging them that to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't know what's gonna happen to me. I may live, I may die. I wanna come see you, but I know like for me to die is far better. And after that exhortation, then he just says, but here's the deal, only, only 
Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The word is translated only in the ESV, which is what I'm reading from. If you have a King James or New American Standard, it's gonna be only. But here's what's interesting. If you have other translations like the NIV, it'll say, whatever happens. This is now one Greek word, but it's translated in a few different ways. So the NIV would say, whatever happens. The ESV says, only. If you have a Christian Standard Bible, it would say, just one thing. Just one thing is what Paul would say. Even the New Living Translation would say, above all. And so if you were to kind of mash these, these translations together about the primary call of the Christian, it might sound something like this. Only whatever happens, just one thing above all, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. You know, one phrase that I've heard multiple pastors say about what it means to be a Christian is this. They'll say, to be a Christian means to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, or to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then to do what Jesus did. That's the essence of the Christian life. It's to spend time with Jesus, and then to begin to live like Jesus, individually, and then corporately as a church, for us to live like Jesus, to be the body of Jesus. And even what he would say in chapter 215, that we would, have been, we would shine like stars in the world. The manner of our life to be worthy of the gospel. And there's one other thing I think is important for us to see before we move on. Is notice that he's not just saying to live, how to live generically. He says, let the manner of your life. That is actually one Greek word as well which uh, I'm gonna say this probably wrong, but I tried, polytuame. Now, why would I bring up a Greek word that I can't hardly even say? Well, because it's actually a verb. And what it means is to be a citizen, to be a citizen. Or it actually could mean as a verb to discharge your obligations as citizens. Because the verb itself is built on the Greek word polis, which is where we get city. So it connotes a political duty of citizens in a city. And if you have an ESV, I don't know about the other translations, but if you have an ESV out beside worthy, you probably will see a note. And at the bottom, what it says is actually the literal Greek of this means only behave as citizens worthy. So Paul is doing more than saying, live your lives well. He's saying to conduct your life as a good citizen. The question is, citizen of what? Citizen of what? And you can read different people's views on this and they're kind of, some would say, well, citizen of heaven is pretty clear as what he means. And others might say, well, I think it's more clear that he means citizen of like Philippi, where they live. Um, but, but to me, I think the most winsome argument that won for me is actually just, I think it's both. I think you see that in, in verse one where he says, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi. When, we preached through the, when I preached through the first uh, message on this, I talked about we had two locations. We are in Christ, in the heavenlies, and yet we're also at, they're actually at Philippi. We are in Christ and we are at Jonesboro or Brooklyn or Paragold or wherever you are from. And so I think really what's going on here is there's two citizenships. But what's interesting that I think he's pointing out is when you get to chapter 3, he says, we are, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So I think while he is having two views in mind, the way we live in the earth, but also living as citizens of heaven, I think for him, the primary citizenship is our heavenly citizenship. We are citizens of heaven with a primary call to live as citizens where we live on earth while giving ultimate allegiance to our primary citizenship and our primary king the kingdom of heaven and King Jesus. This is why in N.T. Wright's uh, commentary on this, he, he branches these four verses out and here's what he says. He calls it uh, the gospel in public, which we'll get to here in a second, what it means to be a public witness. But you can see like Paul uses this phrase here, really just mainly here in this letter of Polytuame. Why is that? And I think that's because Philippi is known for its Roman nationalism. We've talked about this already as well. 
It was settled by retired Roman officers. And so it was very common for them to be elevating their Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship came with perks. It came with expectations. In fact, the reason Paul's in jail right now writing this letter in Rome is because he used one of those perks to get his hearing before Caesar. And I can imagine it would be alluring to Roman citizen, it would be alluring to put Roman citizenship as primary for them. Especially when they're being persecuted, especially when the foot of Rome is on their neck. How easy it would be and how probably even in the moment it would feel like it wasn't that big a deal to kind of subvert which citizenship was primary in their life. Persecution comes, it's like, do I, do I really have to stand firm in this? You see, the problem is it's not too hard for us to see how that would be alluring because I think the same thing is alluring for us. It's not too hard for us to imagine being drawn in to patriotism that seems good and harmless at first, and it is, but eventually swallows all other allegiances and severs the anchor of our life. <clears throat> and what happens is we then become adrift by the ideologies of this world. You see, the wind and the waves, <clears throat> they come, and how devastating the sinking of our ship will be when we, are, when we have slashed the anchor of Jesus in exchange for allegiance to the world in which we live for the ease and the comfort of allegiance to country, to specific politics, or just to the way of the world. Patriotism, while fine and good, when it's in the right place, can do a lot of damage when it becomes your primary citizenship. But maybe for you, patriotism is not what draws you in. Maybe it's just the pull of the culture we live in, the culture of acceptance. You see, citizens of America, we're offered tons of ideologies that are a lot easier to swallow. You know, Jesus says things like, narrow is the road, and few find it that lead to life. But our culture says, uh, I think really wide is the road that leads to life. And most people probably find it, except for exclusive people. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. But culture says no one really has absolute truth, except for me, of course. To say that there is no absolute truth is an absolute truth claim. Those are easier ideologies to swallow, though. Sounds better, right? Die to self, take up your <clears throat> cross, that sounds awful. What you really need to do is pursue self, pursue your dreams, live your truth. You know, instead of Jesus's view of fidelity or sexual ethic or faithfulness or the goodness of God's created order, our culture wants to feed us an easier pill to swallow. We are, we're, we're more enlightened now. We have acquired so much knowledge and perspective over this mist that is our life that we just know best how to define what life is, what sexuality is, what marriage is. Jesus would say, love your enemies. And the culture would give you an easier pill to swallow and say, nah, I don't really do that. I don't have to do that. I mean, I love those who love me and give me their good energy. Get on my level. Except if you're not with me, then you need to just get lost. You see, we are constantly pulled. There's a gravitational pull in this world and it's strong. And it's easy for citizens of heaven to lose their passport and think they belong in this foreign land but our primary citizenship is not in this world. It's in heaven. And the, works, in the words of Marcus <clears throat> Bachmuel, here's what he says about this. He says, Philippi may be a colony enjoying the personal imperial patronage of Lord Caesar, but the church at Philippi is a personal colony of Christ, the Lord above all. 
So what would it look like for us at Journey Church to truly understand that our primary citizenship and our primary call and our primary allegiance is to Jesus? How would that impact the way that we love those we disagree with? How would that impact the way we engage with the American dream and what we pursue with our lives? How would it impact how we va- what we value in the world, what we see as worth chasing? How would it impact the way we use our resources or how we use hospitality? It should impact it greatly. And here's what a- another quote from Marita and Chan that I thought was interesting. Whenever someone visits a Christian congregation and observes their way of life, they should be reminded of Christ's kingdom. Churches are little outposts of the kingdom of God. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So our love, life, liberty, humility, and other values of the kingdom should be on display. We should seek to make known in the present what life in the future will be like. And by the power of the Spirit in us, I believe Journey Church can be a place like that. A place where the message lines up with our mouths. What we say and our lives line up. And Paul shows that the way we live is not just uh, important or the important thing, it is vital for a public witness. Look what he says at the whole verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we live this way, when our lives match our lips, It's a public witness to the world, and we see that in two ways. It shows our unity around the gospel, and it creates conversations. Paul says that whether he comes or not, he's going to hear about it. People will be talking about how unified they are. Paul says that whether he comes or not, he's going to hear, and it's interesting language that he uses here because it's similar to the military language of that day. Stand firm, he says. Stand firm in one spirit. It's as though you can, you can feel that they're getting the weight and the pushback of the culture and of the world and they're standing firm. And it also has a connotation of athletes coming around a common goal. When he says, with one mind striving side by side, I think about, because I played football, I think about an offensive line, side by side, pushing forward. These are images that he connotes. And if you've ever been on a team, it doesn't have to be an athletic team. If you've been on any kind of team, a work team, any kind of way, you know that the camaraderie of coming together around a common goal and what that does. Uh, Remember the Titans is one of my favorite football movies. Probably one of my favorite movies, period, but especially the football movies. And, you know, if if you're not familiar with it or if it's been a long time, it's a true story, so I really can't ruin the story for you. But um, Herman Boone, played by Denzel, he's a stud. Uh, it's, it's a story of him. He was a football coach, African-American football coach in Arlington, Virginia, 1971. Uh, and then you have Bill Yost, who's played by Will Patton. And he is um, basically the, a Caucasian, a white football coach in the same town. And what they were doing at T.C. Williams High School is they were merging the school, they were integrating the school in 1971. And the football team this black team predominantly and white team are merging together. And it's basically the story of just the initial disaster that that was for the school, for the community, all the challenges that brought as they were divided. And yet what you see as you watch the movie is as they learn one another, as they see the humanity in one another, they end up kind of coming together and not just a picture of reconciliation. The story is a beautiful picture of the challenge that can be there within, when there's division on a team, and yet that when they work together, when they're unified, that the sum is greater than its parts. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. I don't think he wants them to, to remember the Titans and do the little dance. 
But I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to get at them, get at them to see and get us to see that unity is vital in the face of persecution and of challenges. We've got to be united around something bigger than ourselves. And we've got to be united around something even bigger than our team. Because in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution and challenge, he's encouraging the Philippians to unite around what? The faith of the gospel. To stand firm in one mind, striving side by side. The gospel in public. Unity in the church gives a witness to the public. And let's just be honest with everything we've been through in the last couple months as a church, it'd be easy for us to struggle with unity. But I believe by God's grace, at least I know I've been encouraged to see the way in which you all have pursued unity, how you've prayed for unity. But here's what I want us to see. I think it would be easier for us to be like, I think we've, we're good. We feel unified. This is great. And let's not rest. Don't rest on our unity now because we have an enemy that will continue to come at us. Satan and his demonic forces, the powers and principalities, they don't want to see unity. Why? Because for us to be unified is a public witness to the truth of the gospel. And that's why I think Paul uses this military language to help us understand that we are in a fight, brothers and sisters. We're in a fight for unity. And as the body of Jesus, our unity will be one way that our lips match our lives. But this public witness has to be undergirded by something. And it's undergirded by a profound courage. A profound courage. As we look at this courage in the text, I think we're gonna see the sign of this courage and we're gonna see the source of it. So first look at the sign. Verse 28, chapter one, verse 28, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now this, this is tough language. in some ways, just reading that verse should turn our stomachs. Like if you read that and you're like, yeah, their destruction should turn your stomach. We should not rejoice in the destruction of anyone. So what's going on here? What's Paul doing? Paul is saying the Philippians' opponents on earth, those who at the time were persecuting his church would see their lack of fear. They would see the lack of fear in the church in the face of trials, suffering, and even death. And that would in some way be able to perceive that even if they're winning in this particular fight, if they are able to enchain them or end their life, that some way they're still actually losing the battle. That even if they killed the saints at Philippi, the gospel would advance the kingdom of God would continue and they were powerless to stop it. And that meant that they were, power, they were a powerless opposition to Jesus, the Lord and King of the universe. And unless they repented and turned to Jesus, they would be destroyed. Now, that's the good news. They could be saved. Paul was one of those who was an op opposer of Jesus in the church. But if you don't turn and repent, he's saying they would be destroyed. But I also think he's trying to show the Philippian church that it's a sign of destruction to their spiritual enemy in the world. What the Bible calls powers and principalities, that Satan and his demonic forces, they see when the church is unified in the face of death, in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, the demonic forces see that their impending destruction is certain. And they are the real opponents that we have. 
And when we realize that they are the real force, the powers of principalities are the real force behind the evil, wreaking havoc in our world, it allows us to actually love the men and women who are our opponents on earth. How is that, you might ask? Good question. Because we know that we once were opponents of God. Blinded by the powers of this world before Jesus opened our eyes and saved us. Which brings us to the other sign of this profound courage, and that's a sign of salvation. That whatever happens, persecution, suffering of all kinds, troubles aplenty, God has us, God will keep us, and God will see us home into his nail-scarred hands forevermore. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. The profound courage of God's people in the midst of suffering is a sign of their salvation. I was talking with uh, one of our mission partners. Actually, he emailed me a story last night um, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, a Christian that was spreading the gospel in Central Asia using flash drives and USB drives and and basically was, was uh, found out, was in jail, and they threatened his life. If he would just recant and say that he was still Muslim, they would, they would set him free, and he refused. He said, I, I can't do it. You can, you can kill me. That's fine. I'll go be with Jesus. Sounds kind of familiar. Or you can set me free, and I'll continue to make disciples. It's your choice. And they decided, well, you know what? Making him a martyr would probably be worse, so we'll set him free. This is what happens it's a public witness and it's, it's a profound courage that is assigned to those that are hearing it. Like, we can't stop this guy. We can't stop this woman. It's a profound courage, but we have to ask ourselves, well, how do I get that? How do I get that? I mean, I know we don't face persecution to that degree yet in this country. We still suffer. We still have certain types of persecution that we feel. How do we get that courage? What's the source well, verse 29 and 30, it's actually an unlikely source, you might think. What do he say in verse 29? He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> What's the source for profound courage? It's grace. Grace? He says, two things have been granted to you. Belief in him and suffering for him. Belief in Jesus and suffering for Jesus. The word translated granted here means to do a favor to or to show oneself gracious or kind. So the ability to have faith in Jesus is a gift from God. Now some of you might be like, really? Really? Now I don't have time to show you all the places that this is clear in scripture, but I just want to show you this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. That whole phrase is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Why? So that you can't boast. Because if you could muster up enough faith to be saved, then you would have at least a little something to boast about. Yeah, I'll say by grace, but it's really, you know, I had to have faith. Now you have to have faith. You individually have to choose to have faith in Jesus, but yet Paul would tell us in Philippians, he'd tell us in Ephesians, the Bible would say throughout that God is to open our eyes to give us this faith. So why would I say, why would I even say that? Why does it matter? Because when you know that God is the one who holds you from start to finish, it bolsters your faith. I've been saying for two months now that if your confidence depends on you, you will not have confidence. You just won't. Because you know how much you struggle with faith. You know how much difficulty you have trusting God, you know, like you hear this, you're like, I don't know if I can have that kind of courage because the confidence can't be in yourself. 
but confidence in Jesus who holds us, who calls us, bolsters your faith and your courage. And you're going to need that faith and courage when you see that the other thing you're graced with is the gift of suffering. Yay, man, it's been three weeks. That's what I said last week. We're kind of in a mini-series. It's going to end today, I think, uh, on suffering and persecution. But it's a reality. I've heard multiple people say that the West is the most unprepared culture for suffering in the history of humanity. We don't know what to do with it. It's important that we root ourselves in understanding biblically as God's people what it means if we suffer. We've been given the grace of suffering. How can that encourage us? How can that give us courage? Well, I think when the enemy comes against you, instead of why me, you could say something like Jesus in Matthew 5. You can say, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus will be with you and your persecution. Uh, As I said earlier, I reached out to one of our missionary partners uh, a couple weeks ago as well, and he sent me this. I was asking him, like, just kind of what he's seen in regards to suffering, persecution, Uh, and he sent this quote to me I thought was interesting uh, that he had in his own journal from a quiet time he had a few years ago. And here's, here's what he said in regards to suffering. He said, the gospel doesn't spread in spite of suffering. The gospel spreads because of it. Now, I don't have time to show you that, but it is clear all throughout the book of Acts and church history that suffering does not stop the gospel. It actually spreads the gospel. And he said this, I thought it was profound. He said, this is the example God gave the church. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. That's Isaiah 53. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ. You see, most of us, myself included, we see faith as a gift. We don't see suffering as a gift. But Paul says we are graced with both belief and suffering for the sake of Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus, the suffering servant, will be with you in suffering of all kinds, whether it's suffering from persecution for your faith, whether it's suffering from just living in this broken and fallen world that he is renewing, or whether you're suffering from your own foolishness and decisions that you made, which is a lot of my life. I'm sure I'm the only one. I didn't get an amen, so. But if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you can rest assured that he's big enough. As we sang earlier, he's big enough to give beauty for ashes and to turn graves into gardens. He can do that. That's why the promise of Romans 8.28 is so sweet. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, this doesn't say that all things are good. There's some awful stuff that happens in this life. And it's not good, but the promise is that God is sovereign over the enemy's plans, over our own foolishness, and over men and women's decisions to bring good and to fulfill his purposes in your life. And look at me, he doesn't do that with some things, he does that with all things. He does that with all things. And when you understand and believe this, this creates a profound courage in this life. It's profound because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that we would have courage in moments like this. That's why it is such a profound courage and public witness to the world. Courage in the midst of trials is a sign that he's with you and that he will save you. Now, some of you here today hear this and you lose hope because you're just not feeling very courageous. 
You're just not feeling very courageous. You got big things in your life that seem insurmountable. And I get it. Keep in mind, again, we're not talking about a state of perfection. This is why the point isn't called perfect courage. It's profound courage. There will be days of doubt. Some of you right now are in a season of suffering and it feels hard to even remotely think about being courageous. I remember back in 2014, after our second miscarriage, I walked to my closet and I closed the door and I cried out in anger to God at what felt like his cruelness to us. Why would he not bless us with a child? Why would he allow so many people to get pregnant? Some who don't even want children and then we struggle so much. Why would I have to see my wife devastated? And when I came out of the closet, I sang amazing grace and the light shined on my face and no. Are you kidding? I came out with eyes red Knees and elbows rubbed raw with carpet burn from pleading with him. I didn't have epiphanies. I wasn't rejoicing. I was upset. But the Lord uses those moments of realness, the moments of doubt that's expressed to him as a way to keep us and draw us in for deeper intimacy with him. You see, we find profound courage not in feeling zero doubt or having zero questions. We find profound courage through continually coming back to the grace of God offered to us in Jesus who suffered himself on our behalf and welcomes us into his presence with all our questions and all our doubts so that he can be the hero instead of us. It's all about him. So as we close, I just want to encourage you, the call to only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel, it doesn't result in some extensive to-do list. It's a call to consider a person, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? It doesn't start with a do list, it starts with considering the person of Jesus and the way to live a life worthy of the gospel is to center your life on the hero of the gospel. We trust Jesus to continue to be enough for us in this life, come what may, and to welcome us home to eternal life when the kingdom of heaven finally and fully comes on earth forever. That's the basis of Paul's encouragement to the church in Corinth. Despite their challenges and their difficulties, here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is the gospel. The jars of clay would be our lives. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There will be a time in your life, I heard a pastor say 10,000 years from now, what you're going through won't seem to matter much. It matters now, but it's light and momentary affliction. So though we may be afflicted, church, we're not crushed. Though there are definitely times that we are perplexed at what in the world God might be doing, we're not driven to despair. In persecution, we're not forsaken. We may even be struck down, 
but we will not be destroyed. Instead, we have been given the sign from God that we will be saved. For Jesus himself said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have, will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So if you're here today and you're not following Jesus, like if you would just say, that's not my story, I would just say, ask him to give you faith. Ask him to give you faith, because he's not going to deny that. No one that comes to Jesus for faith will be denied. He tells us in the Gospels, like, you're, even you know how to give good gifts to your kids. When you come to me and ask for the Holy Spirit, which would mean the eyes to see, the ears to hear, I will give them to you. If you're not here following Jesus, ask him for faith. But brothers and sisters, if you are here following Jesus, let me just encourage you to take heart and take up your life that you may live in a way that shows the worthiness of the gospel of Jesus, the one who doesn't forsake us in our trials, the one who's overcome the world, and the one who through his spirit caused Peter to write this as we close. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5.10. Christian, today, may the God of all grace restore you and equip you to continue to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you. I know these things are heavy things. They're not easy pills to swallow. They're in your word. So we just want to look at what you want to encourage us with. And we want to let your word be to us. Show us areas of our life where we are reversing our citizenship, where we look to this world for comfort, this world for meaning, this world for purpose. Instead, make us people that find our purpose and meaning and value in you and what you say about us so that we can actually be a blessing to this world. Press on us, Lord. Draw us into you. Help us to press deeper into your heart, a heart that is merciful, gracious, cheerful, just, that we can grow more and more into the image of Jesus, the glory of your name, fame around the world. Jesus name.